0: You're listening to another episode of The Zag, Eric DeSoap here, excited to be joined by 2016 NLC San Francisco fellow, Tai Chu, is here. He's recording in a unique location, I'll ask him about in just a second. Thanks for listening to The Zag, let's get to it. All right, Tai, we were talking about it before we started recording, but where exactly in the world are you today?
1: I am sitting in the middle of Honolulu, staring out at the rain and the palm trees right now.
0: And are you there for fun or for work? What's, what's yeah, the Yeah,
1: no, I mean, I, I so I, uh, you'll hear about it in a second. But, you know, I have a lot of flexible time with my work schedule. Mm. And so I take advantage of that. Nice. Um, and sometimes I'll just buy tickets to random places to visit friends and work out of those spots. So that's where I am right now. I've decided <laughs> okay. to buy a ticket to Hawaii to work here for the week.
0: And then I usually ask people when they come on, how did you hear about NLC in the first place? EDLC was recommended to me by my friend Madeline. Um, she was a fellow with the
1: uh, Silicon Valley chapter, the San Jose chapter. And she had nominated me. Um, and I was, I was definitely curious about it. I didn't really know what I was applying to. If I was completely honest, I just knew that she highly recommended it and anything that she highly recommends, I I took seriously. And, um, you know, the deeper I got into the application process, the more I learned about the program. And I, it definitely has shaped the past couple of years for me in some pretty critical ways. And do you have deep
0: ties to San Francisco or you came there fairly recently? How'd you end up there?
1: I'm born and raised in the Bay Area, Eastside San Jose kid right here. Uh, and yeah, I mean, I, I've always just been drawn to the city. We, we grew up going to the city all the time. That was like our weekend trip that we would take as a family. So I've, I know San Francisco pretty well, and I've lived there for about uh, seven years now at this point.
0: And then with San Francisco and the Bay in the news so much for a variety of, of, of things, what do people ask you about the most when you tell them that you're from the Bay? Oh, gosh.
1: I mean, everyone says it's beautiful, right? Which I just nod along and I'm like, yeah, yeah, no, it really is. Um, It's always great. It's like people, it's like having kids and everyone telling you that your kids look cute or something. It just validates it a little bit more because you know, everyone loves where they're from, just as everyone loves their own kids. But it's like near universal agreement. Um, And then the next thing that people usually bring up is like, oh, so... You don't own a home, do you? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and the answer is no, and I probably never will in San Francisco, unfortunately.
0: Yeah, it's an interesting place, and I think that in some ways that might tie into the, some of the work you're doing. So tell me a little bit about the the nonprofit that you have. Yeah, so the
1: nonprofit that I run is called Listen for a Change, and uh, you know it has a double meaning there. So listen for social change, but also you know can you, can we listen for a change? Like can we just stop and listen? Um, and it, you know, the name says a lot about what it is. It's an organization that I founded that is essentially a monthly cocktail hour, um, that's open to the public and is free. Um, and we invite three speakers every single night to share personal stories on three different topics of social justice. So the event is produced and curated by me. So I will, um, select the speakers or the topics ahead of time. Um, so for example, just to give you an idea, our last one that we did was in Los Angeles, um, and that was on the topic of child abuse, on police brutality, and the DREAM Act. And so we try to pick really current relevant topics that you know people hear about on the news, that are um, thrown around in politics, that you know, we see a lot about on social media, And what we do is we provide a safe space for a community to gather together and listen for these marginalized voices from within the community on a platform where they could share their unique experience. And the power of that is that while we hear a lot about these issues in the news and politics on social media, not often are these perspectives coming from members from within the community themselves. And so this, you know, gives a personal aspect to it. you know, as, and, and it's in an engaging storytelling format in a very fun cocktail hour evening. So it's a really, really powerful event. If you ever get a chance, like I highly recommend that, of course, anyone um, attends it because I can talk about it and explain it, but the palpable energy and feeling of it is, you know, as if, you know, I was to sit here and tell you what going to church feels like. But then once you're actually in church, like there's the feeling of it that's that's different once you're around people and you're actually witnessing it
0: in real life. So then what kind of work happens prior to the event to make sure that you are finding voices that you want to lift up and that people are... Uh, believing that you're sincere about wanting to tell their story authentically?
1: Yeah, no, that's that's a really great question. I actually just had, so our next topic that we're featuring in Oakland is um, one of our most sensitive topics, uh, human trafficking. And right now I'm sourcing the storyteller for that. And I had someone ask me yesterday, actually, um, he runs a nonprofit that works with victims of human trafficking. And he had two main issues, which are related to your question. The first off being, um, you know, how do you deal with these people uh, who might've come from a history of trauma and or exploitation. And my response to that is this, this isn't entertainment. I mean, there, there can be entertainment aspects of the stories, but this really is a platform for the voices from these communities themselves. It isn't you know, for just curiosity's sake, it isn't for entertainment purposes, it isn't for any business related things. We, we work with the storytellers for the week or the month leading up to the event, and we pair them with a story coach. So we have a group of story coaches who um, have worked to develop a way in which to, to coach storytellers to tell a listen for a change story. And, uh, I can tell you a little bit what that means in a second, but we have a very specific format and a specific end goal to the stories that we have up there. And we make sure that every storyteller that we select is ready and willing to tell their story. Um, and that, you know, we, we provide, we frame the evening around judgment-free, authentic listening. So there isn't audience questions there, you know, there are is um our MC kind of frames evening around suspending your judgment and just listening to someone speak their truth you might not agree with them but this isn't for you to agree or disagree it is for you to listen to someone's lived experience
0: and then are there visuals accompanying with it, like a TED Talk or an NLC Spark Talk, or it's just nope. words? What's the this actual presentation like? No PowerPoints, no slide decks, nothing. This is
1: pure, like, just people standing in front of a microphone. Sometimes we don't even have a microphone. Um, and that kind of removes that barrier. It really feels like, you know, story hour. It's you know, and, and our events are pretty small and intimate, um, such that you feel like
0: you can talk to anyone and everyone in the room within a given night. So then, have you gotten the best response from I'm trying to think, like school communities or community groups, faith communities? Like, who's who's the kind of larger for our storytellers or our audience? Probably more for the audience, I guess. Yeah who who has really responded to this format?
1: Yeah, that's a that's an interesting question. It really depends on the cities that we're in. So right now we're in San Francisco, Oakland, and then we also run Story Hours sporadically in New York, Los Angeles, and San Jose. And I would say for the most part, we draw a younger skewed audience. And so younger, I mean like millennial to, to, you know, thirties to late thirties, depending on where you cut off (laughs) what a millennial is. Um, But we catch people kind of during this phase for, and we target and we market to this, this demographic for a specific reason. And that is, um, I used to be an educator, And in education, many teachers will tell you that fifth grade to eighth grade is a very critical period in the development of a child, right? That's like for many kids, a make or break period of their lives. And for many, they either go on a path of like having support and resources and feeling like they have an avenue to success or they go down a very different path. And I kind of liken the millennial generation right now to that middle school period, in terms of developing your values, where you stand in the world, what your role is, and your politics. Um, I think the 25 to 35-year-old range right now um, is a demographic that is ripe for activation to be involved in these issues and not just to provide lip service, not just to know the right things to say or even like the right tick box to vote on a ballot, but to actually be... Aware and engaged within these communities to know their role and their place in the world, to know how their voice and their opinions can help those who come from, you know, less than privileged backgrounds from theirs. So yeah.
0: we intentionally do market to this crowd. Nice. When we come back, yeah. I'll ask some more questions about founding a nonprofit and what the, the day-to-day is like. Thanks for listening to The Zag. We'll be right back. So did you ever picture yourself as a, as a nonprofit founder? Yeah, that's a quick answer. No. <laughs>
1: <So> <laughs> no, no absolutely been, not. What's been um, the most,
0: most surprising part then of actually taking on this endeavor?
1: I mean, the surprising part is that I'm doing this at all. Um, I did not anticipate going into... I've always had an interest in entrepreneurship and social entrepreneurship specifically. Um, and it's funny that we were talking about NLC earlier because NLC during the five months or so that I was in the fellowship program, that was when I came out and decided that I did not want to go down the path of nonprofit administration, uh, which is funny cause it's what I'm doing now. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, uh, I, I just love working with people and I love, uh, coming up with creative ideas and implementing them and kind of, uh, just having firsthand, um, uh, you know, work with communities and, the more I interacted with nonprofit leaders, specifically executive directors and people in really high up positions of you know, small to medium-sized nonprofits, the more I realized uh, a large part of your job is administration, but specifically fundraising. And so I never really saw... That's not like... I don't think anyone jumps out of their seat and is like, oh, yay, I want to start a nonprofit because I love to fundraise. But that ends up being a large part of what you do, um, as you can ask any nonprofit leader.
0: So then for you... On the fundraising side is it is it grants is it foundations is it individual donors? what has been the most frequent group that's given you money
1: yeah that's so that's an interesting question because we're still figuring it out we're we're still figuring out where and how we're gonna get our most stable and sustainable sources of income um what we do we're essentially a you know a storytelling event um it's performance based and there's an education component to it and that doesn't lend itself neatly to many grants and foundation fellowships that you would receive, um, offhand. It's not to say those don't exist, but you know, it's, it's not like we're working with like urban kids in education or something like that, where I feel like it's a lot more targeted. Um, we also cast a really wide breadth of, um, you know, communities and social issues that we affect. And so, We haven't had a ton of luck with grants so far. Um, We do a lot of individual donor fundraising, um, and that's kind of been our most successful avenue path. And we're also launching a new program very soon that's a fee-for-service program within Listen for a Change, where we take storytelling into the corporate workspace. Um, specifically we're looking to work with businesses, small to medium sized businesses who want to harness the personal narratives of their staff and employee base to strengthen team culture and to really deliver on this diversity inclusion wave that's happening right now in a meaningful way that goes beyond a hiring practice at the beginning of, you know, someone's, um, tenureship with the company.
0: Yeah. And maybe last question then on founding a nonprofit. I think too, there's a lot of alums who are in a similar position who have founded, uh, nonprofits and they're relatively small and sort of the staff size, maybe three, mm-hmm. three to eight range. For you, when you put your team together and you now manage people, what are the top priorities when you hired folks and what are the top priorities when you manage folks?
1: Yeah. Um, I, when hiring, when looking at people, right, no matter what skill and no matter what position I'm looking them to jump into, because... We are, we are so small right now. We don't have a ton of money right now. We can't pay people, you know, competitively, especially in the Silicon Valley and San Francisco. Uh, What we really look for is people with heart and passion for the work that we do. Uh, First and foremost, I look for people who truly believe that the narratives that we feature on our stage, the storytelling and the way that we feature these stories truly can change the world and has a very real place in the current political climate right now and that it's completely necessary. And so that's always first and foremost, the thing um, that we look for just because, you know, we're new and and
0: we're looking to build that really strong, passionate team. Um, and what was your second question again? In terms of once people are on the team, then what management style have you found yourself taking on? Cause I, I think alums down here, a lot of them are in a similar position, didn't picture themselves. Mm-hmm getting into nonprofit leadership or being executive director or a founder or something yeah. like that. And so then our managing folks in a world that they didn't expect to do that. And so then trying to figure out their style as a manager has been interesting and different to watch. So I always like to ask right. folks who are in that position.
1: Yeah, I, uh, so my management style so far has been, we are so small. We have a lot of volunteers, um, who work with us and I always tell them that you guys run the organization. Um, it's me that organizes things, and I kind of do a lot of the, you know, the backend and administrative work. But um, that's kind of where it ends. I seek a lot of creative input from them. They we have regular meetings, um, you know, with the story coaches, with the event coordinators, with the event volunteers, where we sit down and we look at what's working, what's not. What are the ideas that you want to bring to the table? What are the story topics you want to feature? Um, it's not always the easiest thing as a leader uh, because I have a very specific vision and it's always, you know, easier to just execute on your vision and kind of move forward with that. Um, but the, we are only as successful as we are today because of the input and the creative energy of the entire collective
0: great listen thanks for sharing that story and thanks for everyone who's listened to this episode of the zag a couple episodes went up earlier this week make sure to check those out in the itunes store google play store or on soundcloud more episodes coming next week as well thanks for listening we'll talk to you soon